How did we get here? Everything we see around us in the universe had to have an origin. Trees were once seedlings, which were seeds, which came from mature trees. Chickens were once chicks, which were eggs, which came from chickens. The universe itself consists of a series of events stretched across time in a long causal chain. Each one of these events is the cause of the event that comes after it, and the effect of the event that comes before it. The world as it is came from the world as it was, which came from the world as it was before. The book of Genesis gives us a set of answers about how we came to be. The book of Genesis answers the question of origin. But is Genesis just far-fetched, goofy, highly unlikely mythology that should be taken as allegorical? Or is it a historical count of literal events? If so, are Christians rejecting science by choosing to believe it? How do we make sense of the creation story, the flood narrative? And if we reject Genesis, have we rejected the rest of the Bible? podcast about life, Bible, and beards. My name's Josh, and I'm joined by my co-host and compadre, Gabe. Gabe, how you doing, man? Great, great. I'm, uh, I'm back at school, back teaching, and it feels wonderful to be back in the classroom awesome, with uh, a whole new round of students. I've got even more students that I had in prior years, so it feels good to look at them in the face and be able to interact with them versus... Uh, being virtual, I just, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, did like you guys do like Zoom school? Is that what was we did, happening yeah. for a bit? Yeah, we yeah. did. And it was okay. It's just um, just something about the having the energy in the room, you know, and being able to interact with them. How do you do classroom management on Zoom school? Like if you've got a kid that's <laughs> not paying attention or a kid that's like talking, and yeah. can you tell if they're not? What's really cool is you can click the mute button. Um, but also, I w- yeah, <laughs> I, I no kidding, had a, had a student this year. Um, come to Zoom class with no shirt on. <laughs> <laughs> and then when I told him to go put a shirt on, he uh, he goes in his bathroom, and uh, and I, I see him put the phone down, and then he's standing there, and then I see him pick up a tube of toothpaste and start brushing his teeth mm. in, in the middle of me talking and everything. So it was, it was really yeah. interesting. So I had to... Well, but, those are the risks and perils of doing anything via Zoom. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I had a Zoom conference uh, on Monday, and I was looking for a place to do it at. And there's a there's only like one coffee shop that's open in Murfreesboro, which is a town just right outside of where I live. And, and so I was trying to get to this coffee shop so I could open my laptop and do a Zoom call. So I, I, I did sit down, open my laptop, and I'm doing this Zoom call. And all of a sudden, there's this wasp that like uh-huh. is like zooming all around me in my Zoom call, and I'm sitting there, and I'm like, like dodging the wasp, and and there's guys on the Zoom call that are like looking at me kind of weird, and I'm just like, you know, so finally I, I text one of them like, dude, there's a wasp that he's like trying to sting me. They're like talking about really serious stuff, and uh, finally this coffee shop, this girl that's working the front desk, she like walks over and she's got a newspaper in her hand and she's about to 
hit this wasp and I and I take off my headphones and I'm like, hey, do you want me to kill this wasp? And she's like, yes, please. So on the Zoom call, they all see me stand up and take this newspaper and kill this wasp. And uh, it was super dramatic. Mm. And yeah, it was really it was really cool. He was he was zooming around you. He was zooming around me in the the zoomy wasp. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and it was a, uh, you know, I I just felt like a hero. I told everybody in the coffee shop that I was going to be the the office hero on my Zoom call, but they were yeah. like, "Brooker, what's wrong with you? What are you doing?" Yeah, <laughs> obviously a, there's there's all kinds of like YouTube videos of people like the the stereotypical Zoom person, you know, like um but it's it's like so true. You have like uh we get like teachers together and stuff, we'll have Zoom meetings and stuff and you get the the one who's like on his on his laptop on Zoom and on his phone on Zoom, you know things like that. And you're like, oh man. The 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 best one that I've seen, like Zoom fails, is the lady that is walking around with her cell phone and she leaves it on and she goes to the bathroom. Oh yeah. Have you seen that? Like she doesn't know that yeah. that the camera's turned on, and she sets it up on the counter, and everyone in her office is like, no 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 Susan no, and she's not paying attention and so that's it covid was just a big conspiracy to try to get people to make more zoom videos so that yes um america's funniest home videos could revive itself (laughs) was it what was that danny tanner what was the guy's name the actor's name from uh bob saget bob saget yeah yeah from america's funniest home yeah Yeah, he was trying to make a comeback so he he went to wuhan you know just yeah 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 he just you know put the meat in the bat and yeah I actually think it's probably a conspiracy by Zoom. Mm. So whoever the CEO of Zoom is, Mr. Zoom, Mr. Thomas Zoom, to make a lot of money and get everybody on Zoom. So oh, that's gosh. that's my theory. That seems about as plausible as the theories that I've heard at the grocery store and the checkout line. So, well, I guess I guess we will never know the genesis of mm. the coronavirus. But mm. I see what you're doing. I see what I you're think, doing. I believe that there was no COVID nineteen in the Garden of Eden. Yeah, it was, that, it wasn't that, part of the original plan. It was not part of the original plan. Yeah. Now, Gabe, our last episode we left off talking about the question of origin and how things came to be, and particularly the theory of evolution. And we talked about Charles Darwin. And um, if, if you're listening to this and you're like, man, I I'm I'm missing that. I didn't really hear. Go back and listen, because uh, again, we talked about how so much of what we've been told as Westerners is what we've been told as um, Americans, specifically in academia, is that there is a clear, open and shut case for the question of origin, and that is that we evolved from single cell organisms. But as we talked about in the last episode, those things are actually a bit can i say the word dubious um yeah th- kinda, there's a lot of, there's a lot of problems with that i think we had people drinking through a fire hose in the last episode just talking about um you know eugenics and darwinian evolution and the pr- i think i think the goal the goal of that episode was just to get people to realize that uh the product and the the way of thinking that has resulted from darwinian evolution is one that um, can lead you, well, it takes you down the path of, you know, we are not made in the image of God. We, we are right. 
just highly evolved forms of pond scum, you know, and bacteria and bags of protoplasm. And there's really, even if you accept theistic evolution, then you got to believe that we're not the pinnacle of evolution, that we're just a step along the way. So right. there is no uniqueness to, to hum humanity. We're not really made in the image of God because we're not really there yet, you know, and I think that's the, right. the problem we run into with this. And, um, you know, a big debate that's going around right now at my school is the debate of abortion. And mm. is there anything special to human life? If so, when does it start? Uh, when do we have a right to take innocent human life? Do we have a right to take innocent life? So it's a big conversation that we're having in my classroom right now. And a lot of it, and, and the people who are um, pro-choice, pro-abortion, um, are, are a product of being brought up in an institution that has taught them Darwinian evolution. Right. That's a big so, tragedy. Yeah. And so there, you know, we, we explored that last episode that, that, you know, the, the product and the end result where someone lands mm -hmm. from embracing that worldview is like you said, there's, there's has to be an acknowledgement that the sanctity of life doesn't really exist in a Darwinistic worldview. Um, but we also talked about how there's just some problems with the theory in and of itself. There's some loopholes. There's some, um, right now Gabe's cat is caressing his beard and that's the strangest thing I've ever seen. I was trying to keep it on the DL. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I was like, what? I didn't know Gabe was wearing a scarf. It's August. That, that's kind of weird. I'm sitting here wrestling with an, a hungry cat, and uh, I'm trying to keep it as quiet as possible. <laughs> yeah, well, a couple episodes ago, you, you had a duck that was like quacking the whole time. Now your cat. I'm Gabe sitting here talking about eugenics and Darwinian evolution <laughs> while a cat is, is begging for its breakfast. Your, your cat's like, yeah, I don't really care. Give me something to eat. So. Oh man, I'm I'm not a crazy cat person, I promise. Mm -hmm. It's just my wife's not awake yet, and the cat is starving. So yeah, Gabe has a whole menagerie of animals. First the duck, now the cat. Oh man. So this episode, we're going to talk a little bit about the Bible and what the Bible says about the question of origin and how we came to be. And this is a bit of a controversial topic, I think, with even within the church because. Um, for so long, I think uh, the church obviously accepted the Bible's explanation of origin, and then the origin of species came along about 200 years ago, and so um, more and more people began to accept that, and then um, the church was a bit divided as to, okay, so what do we do with the origin of the species? What do we do with science and the fossil record and things like that? And so there's been a, a lot of different... Um, reinterpretations of the biblical narrative and one of the big questions that people have i think is should genesis be taken literally or should genesis be taken figuratively so gabe what do you think about that man when when someone asks you that question pastor yeah. gabe yeah <clears throat> what, well, what what should i do tell me what how should i take this 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 book is talking about talking snakes it's talking about a big flood it's talking about people coming into an ark and animals two by two. Is that literal? Is that figurative? Yeah, well, I look at it, um, unless it tells me otherwise, I look at it literally. Um, keeping in mind that, you know, there are different genres of books in the Bible um, that we're not supposed to take literal, but those make themselves obvious, that they're right. allegorical, that they're, that they're poetry. Whereas Genesis is like, here is the beginning, and it is a historical narrative um, of the zenith of creation, of space and time, and 
Um, yeah, I, I, t- I look at it literal until told otherwise by right. the text itself. So in the Bible, there are things like parables, mm-hmm. which we obviously know that's a, that's a teaching method. Mm-hmm. And there are prophetic visions. There are dreams, those kinds of things. So those kinds of things are taken symbolic, correct? Yeah, yeah. But when the Bible says this is history, then we are to view it as history. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the book of Genesis is too too interwoven with genealogy and historical narrative to be taking, taken anything other than, than literal because um, you'd have to go through with a pair of tweezers and figure out, you know, what is allegorical what is you know uh, supposed to be symbolic here and and it, it's just you'd have to slice it all up and it's not it's not meant to be that and I think we have to remember that the book of Genesis um, would have been an oral tradition that would have been passed down before you know ink was put to parchment you know it's it was yeah. something that you, you used to sit around the fire and listen to the elders probably can't or sing this historical narrative to you and that's how you knew how you came to be, mm-hmm. um, and you would go. They would go through the genealogy and talk about, you know, the the generations of Adam down to the generations of Noah, and and then the Noah's flood, and you would hear all these these legends and these stories. But that was to be history, and history was is a big deal within right. the ancient Near Eastern culture and your genealogy and where you came from. It's a really big deal. So the author of Genesis is Moses, but like you said. These would have been histories. These would have been um, things that for generations the Jewish people would have known them. They would have understood them. This would have been the story of origin, the story of how things came to be. And so Moses would have been the one that pinned them under the um, inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Um, and again, we've um, if you go back to uh, the Old Testament, the book of Exodus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, we see that... Uh, in the tent of meeting, God would show up and speak to Moses as someone would speak to a man face to face, which is just so cool. I think that's the coolest thing ever. So God shows up and inspires Moses to record the history of um, the origin of God's people, the origin of the world. Um, but it's important to note that this would have been something that would have been familiar to the Jewish people for generations before Moses penned it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. A good thought is like the people in slavery in Egypt. Uh, they they would have heard about the promises given to their father Abraham, and you hmm. know they would have been expecting liberation. How, and how would they heard that? That you know Moses has yet to write that down. It would have been yeah through oral transmission of these these stories and these promises and these covenants. Yeah, and so they would have viewed it literal. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't have viewed it as allegory. Um, the Old Testament authors later on, even the book of First Chronicles one um, eight, when it talks about genealogies all the way back to Adam, so they view Genesis as literal. Yeah. Um, the psalmists seem to view it as literal. Psalm 29.10 refers to the flood. Uh, Psalm 104, uh, verse 5 and 19 speaks of the events of the creation. Um, Isaiah 54, Ezekiel 14, they both mention Noah. So the Jewish people would not have looked at the book of Genesis and gone, oh, big poem, that's all it is, <laughs> right? Um, there are things like, you know, for instance, the, the concept of a garden and a snake and, and being pushed to the east, being exiled out to the east, those are all themes 
that appear in other uh, narratives within the Bible that, that you know, right. kind of carry through, like, you know, David and Bathsheba and, you know, all these other, like the, the, um, the Israelites and the golden calf. Like, that's, a, that's an obvious reference back to the, knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So these themes hmm. end up, they end up representing kind of like a hyperlink back throughout the text um, that draws back to the original story. But the, the principle, which I believe is a literal um, event, the principles that are based off of these literal events, um, is that we as humans were tempted by Satan, and we have a choice to make. And if we choose wrongly, then we have to be exiled. But the, there is there is hope in that exile. So that's kind of the theme that runs throughout Scripture. Interesting. Um, so so yeah. So it's not it, it's not that we can look at the sixty six books of the Bible and take the first one and go, ah, eh, didn't really happen, and then still have the sixty five other ones mm-hmm. say that. Well, I believe all the other stuff, but this first one completely figurative, completely allegorical, because as you yeah. mentioned, it's a th- I mean it's a theme that. You can't understand redemption. You can't understand atonement if you don't understand Genesis three, and that's the fall. Yeah. Um, and and even the New Testament makes even more explicit references to the early chapters of Genesis because you see in the genealogies of Jesus, Matthew one and Luke three, um, you see Paul talking about sin in Romans five and First Corinthians fifteen. He's he's talking about Adam. <laughs> And so if Adam is just a big allegory, then, you know, you, you it kind of breaks the foundation on that. Mm-hmm. Peter refers to the flood, 1 Peter 3 and 2 Peter 2. And then Jesus quotes Genesis' history in Matthew 19. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm teaching in Matthew 19 this week. In Matthew 19, 4, Jesus says, Have you not heard from the beginning that God created them uh, male and female? And he's quoting Genesis 2, 24. Um, well, then Matthew 24, he says, As in the days of Noah... Right. So will the yeah. coming of the Son of Man be? So, <clears throat> right. um, he's using the days of Noah as a reference point for how it will be at his return. Yeah. So it it, it seems like the Bible itself identifies Genesis as reliable historical narrative that gives us events that literally happened. Now the problem is for our Western minds that are a bit more rational and a bit uh, more skeptical is that these things seem to defy the laws of what we may see as natural or what we may see as rational, hmm. which is a hard sell, I think, for some of us if we come from, again, a more um, academic background. But I would challenge anyone that says some of this stuff is far-fetched to honestly examine the claims of Charles Darwin. <laughs> <laughs> What's the alternative? Yeah. Right. Because to me, it seems like the explanation that's given by Darwin uh, just seems a little bit more far-fetched than the idea of a creator God creating the universe. So, mm-hmm. yeah, they're just it's it's incoherent as a theory. Yeah. So let's go to the very beginning. A very good place to start. <laughs> when you sing, you begin with. You didn't get the reference, Gabe? That's Sound of Music, dude. Oh, no, no. Oh, I don't do Sound, sound- of Music. I don't do... If it's a musical, you, you've lost me on the reference. Yeah? You yeah. don't do musicals? I, I've never made it through the Sound of Music still to this day. <laughs> That's, yeah, yeah, that and Fiddler on the Roof. I just haven't... I've started them multiple times. You, you um, just couldn't do it, huh? Just couldn't do it. Well, sorry. when I, I was people. on a scholarship at Southeastern College, 
where you and I both went. Mm-hmm. I was on a cello scholarship, and so I had to play in all the musicals and the orchestra. Mm-hmm. So I memorized all the cello parts for Fiddler on the Roof. Yeah, I remember going to see that in the Polk Theater. Yeah. With my uh, significant <laughs> other. <laughs> I was about to say, I was trying to guess who that was. That was a long time ago. So. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So All Genesis right. 1. Yeah, let's change the subject. Genesis in, 1. Okay. The Reshit. I'm so glad you know how to pronounce that word. <laughs> well. Because it's spelled R-E-S-H-I-T. And yeah. I was so nervous when I saw that on our show notes because I was like, I don't know how to say that. And I, I, don't thought wanna... about, I thought about saying it the other way just to just to yeah. make this an explicit podcast. But... Yeah, we'd have to put a parental advice. But yeah, advice. it's actually the word is Bereshit. In the in the beginning, so you put this B sound in front of it, and it makes in the beginning. So um, there's an interesting note here that the the sages of old always ask, why does the book of the Bible start with the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet and not the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet? And there's all you know all kinds of discussions and stuff. So they have Bereshit, and the the bait is the first letter of the Hebrew, or the second second letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's the first letter of the Bible, and it's kind of this weird. Thing. But if you take the last letter of the Torah, if you go to the end of Deuteronomy, the very last letter is the letter Lamed, which makes the equivalent of our letter L. And then you put the two together, you have the word Lev, which means heart. So the first letter and the last letter of the Torah is the word heart. Um, huh. So it's like the very heart of God being exposed to man through through the first five books of the Bible. Interesting. That's super interesting. So... That phrase in the beginning, mm-hmm. there's a significance to it just even throughout the whole narrative of the of the Bible, of the Hebrew Bible. Mm-hmm. So even the phraseology, even the word, all that stuff that's there's significance in that. Yeah, it comes from the word rosh, which means uh, head or or beginning. Um, so yeah, this this word it it is um, unequivocally means like at the beginning like there was prior to this word there was no such thing as space or time you know this is like this wow. is the zenith of it all yeah so here's what cosmologists and cosmology is the study of origin here here's what they say if you traced all of the events back in in again we we have the universe and the existence of the universe everything can be traced back to the thing that happened before it so if you see a tree the tree was once a sapling. The sapling was once a seed. That seed once came from another tree. Um, and you trace all that stuff back, and you get back to the origin of what was that single event that set everything into motion. What most cosmologists say is that uh, the earth was was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, right? <laughs> so there was a period of time in the history of the universe where things were gases and all of that stuff and then there was one single event cosmologists say it was a singularity that set everything into motion Mm. a lot of cosmologists refer to that as the big bang does that sound familiar yeah yeah so it's completely coherent with the book of genesis right the creation account because verse 2, Genesis 1, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Mm. And then God said, let there be light, and there was light. Yeah, and the language there is like, 
um, it, it says where it's unformed and void, it uses tohu vavohu, which is like, um, it's almost kind of repetitive, which means it was like, it was all just kind of messed up. Like it was all just, it was without, it's the opposite of when we see later, as he begins to call these things into order, he calls them the Hebrew word tov, which means functioning the way they're intended to function. But here hmm. it's the opposite of that. It means everything is at violence with itself. And it says darkness was on the face, face of the deep. The only other time that we see um, water subduing the earth and there being this idea of, of the water, of water surrounding and covering the land is, is in Genesis 7, where he has, to re, he has to rewind creation. He has to put it back into a state of chaos and then slowly recreate the earth again. And it follows the same exact pattern. So that's creation. after the, the flood. Yeah. The Genesis yeah. 7. Yeah, because Genesis 6 is the... Yeah. But then this wow. this choshek that covers this darkness that covers the the earth at the time, it's a really it's not it's not a darkness it's not a generic darkness like the absence of sunlight, it is a darkness that um, can be felt. It's like a spiritual hmm. darkness, and it's the same word that's used to describe the darkness that God inflicted on Egypt. Interesting. So the Egypt the Egyptians had this choshek stuff, and they even says in the text they could feel it was darkness that you could feel but hmm. and it says in the homes of the israelites there was or there was light and that's the exact same thing that god speaks into existence here in verse three wow wow that's pretty cool well let's look at some of the interpretations of this creation narrative because again this is this is i think where most people have a difficulty um accepting the genesis narrative is chapters one and two mm-hmm. that describe the creation of the world, basically our origin story. And so there's a lot of different viewpoints as to how does one accept that. So we'll just kind of walk through them, and then we'll talk through each one of these, and we'll talk through kind of strengths and positions and how how some view this. And so uh, the first position for interpreting Genesis 1 is a position called historical creationism. And so this holds to the position that what God created in Genesis 1-1, so God created the heavens and the earth, that existed for an undefined period of time. So anywhere from a moment to billions of years due to the use of the word beginning, which, say that word in Hebrew again so I don't mess it up. Uh, Bereshit. Okay, thank you. If I said that, then we'd have to bleep it out. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Uh, yeah, so that <laughs> word that you're gonna say, and I'm not gonna say because we, you know, we don't know who's listening and have sensitive ears. That that marks a starting point for what comes afterwards, before God began the work of preparing the uninhabitable uninhabitable land for the habitation of mankind. So basically, this view holds to an old Earth, six literal days of creation. And a young humanity on an old earth. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So the reason it's called historical creationism is not because, um, you know, it's not saying that it's anything. uh, Basically, it it was held by several in church history before the rise of modern science. Hmm. So several throughout church history believe that, you know, the earth was without form and void, dark was over the face of the deep. They're like, well, how long was that? Well, we don't know. So it could have been a moment, it could have been billions of years. 
So you could hold to this view and believe in six literal days of creation, but a old earth. So that's kind of the, the first viewpoint. That's historic creationism. Second viewpoint is young earth creationism. And that is that God created the entire universe, including Adam and Eve, in a six literal 24-hour days. So this is, I think, if you just read the text straightforward, you know, just Genesis 1 to 2, every verse by verse, this is probably the most obvious and straightforward reading of it. And those who seek to be faithful to the text uh, affirm and say, well, if we follow the narrative of the Bible, the universe seems to be less than 10,000 years old. And really interprets the data of science through the terms of inspired scripture. And so this starts off with scripture as the foundation for um, how you interpret science. Um, Some people really struggle with that because they go, man, it seems like there's so much evidence for an old earth. Um, and, And one difficulty for this is that the creation of the sun and the moon occurred on day four. And the text says there was evening and morning in the first three days. So some people that say, I don't, I don't really buy the whole young earth creation, six literal days, they kind of point to that. Um, have you heard that? Yeah, I've heard, you know, what, what was this light that he created in verse three? He said, let there be light. Hmm. And, you know, why does, why, how is there light? What is this light before he creates the sun, moon, and the stars? Yeah. So, yeah, it opens up, you know, some questions there. Sure. Um, and this would be, and and I think, and I don't know, you've been to the Ark Encounter, uh, Ken Ham, Answers in Genesis. I believe he is a young earth creationist. Is that correct? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Yeah. Um, okay, so that's the second view. So first view, historic creationism. Second view, young earth creationism. Third view is something called the gap theory. And so the gap theory basically says, Genesis 1-1 explains kind of the first creation that happened perhaps a billion years ago. So God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was out form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep. So that was kind of God's first creation. And it existed for a long time. How long? We don't know. Could have been billions of years. And then a catastrophic event, such as the fall of Satan from heaven, left the earth in a destroyed condition of Genesis 1 and 2. So when it says the earth was without form and void, darkness over the face of the deep, that was because of the fall of Satan from heaven. And so God responded to this disaster by recreating the earth uh, later in six literal days and repopulating the earth as recorded in Genesis 1, 3, verse 27. And so according to this view, the earth is old because of the first creation and mankind is young because of the recent creation. So I think there's a lot of problems with this view, mainly because uh, <laughs> you're basically making a bunch of stuff up that's not in the text. <laughs> I mean, have you heard of this? Yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, I, I, lo- I was looking at these things as almost kind of like a compromise with um, Darwinian evolution. And, right. You know, I, I don't want to be guilty of, of forcing things into the text that aren't there just because... Um, you know, Darwinian evolution is the prevailing theory, 
you know, within secularism and, you know, within public schools and, and universities and things. So, um, yeah, for the sake of not making a compromise, yeah, I think, I think I look at the book of Genesis, um, you know, I tend to take, I tend to take a young earth creationism kind of standpoint, but I could also mm -hmm. sit down and have coffee with someone who takes historical creationism seriously. Right. Um, in other words, like I'm okay with interacting with that and being friends with someone who believes that. <laughs> I, I think what, what about gap theory? I mean, I, I think yeah. gap theory to me is a hard sell. I mean, cause like yeah. you're, you're basically saying God created the earth and, uh, it was full of like angels or whatever else. And then there was a fall of Satan from heaven and God like, yeah, no, I'm going to start yeah, over. I, I, think I mean, there's a lot of stuff in the text. That's reading way between the lines. Yes. I, but I, I do have a teacher I really admire, um, who, who believes in the historical creationism. And then I have even more, teachers and, and scholars that I admire who believe in young earth creationism. So yeah. it's kind of, that's kind of where I'm at is the young earth creationism. But you, like I said, I, I you're can... playing your cards way too soon. Chief. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Yeah. I was going to do like the big unveil, like in the middle of the episode where like, and Gabe, what are you? And then we're going to cut <laughs> to commercial and then, which we've never had commercials. So, but I was going to make up a commercial and then <sighs> the big unveil. So people would keep yeah. listening to the podcast. I don't so. think people care enough to hear Gabe's I, point of view. I don't <laughs> either. So, <laughs> All right, so gap theory. I'm I'm with you, man. I I just I don't see that somebody. I, I don't I think I've ever actually met someone who believes that. I'm not saying they're not out there. Maybe you're listening to this podcast and that's what you uh, that's how you understand this. But I I just would suggest to you to really be careful about any um, biblical hermeneutic that teaches you to read between the lines and basically come up with an your own uh well i think the, the story biggest story that the bible doesn't talk about the, the biggest um i don't know um, i guess the, the the possible um shoe in for the gap theory in the text is the fact that there are two creation accounts there's genesis 1 and there's genesis 2 and right they seem to be these completely unique creation accounts except they're not they they completely can they can kind of fold in on top of each other and overlay on top of each other and, hmm. you know, some people will say, well, there was the first creation and then, you know, th things kind of went awry and then there's a second creation. And, but that, I think that's, that's really reading into the text. It's really forcing it into the text. And I don't think that that's right. So um, explain to me why the, the two creation accounts, one in Genesis 1, one in Genesis 2, tell me why they are two different ones. Um, I, the, the only thing I think of is that there is, there is um, information in one that, needed to be extrapolated in the second but other than that so I don't more know. detail more detail in the second possibly then. yeah like we don't know yeah. the names of these people who were created in the garden um until genesis 2 in that creation account we don't know right. how eve came about until genesis 2 in that creation account we don't know anything about this he, he took his rib and you know he put him in a deep sleep and took his rib and made mm. made her um it, it does in genesis 2 it does give us a lot more detail um, right, but and that's not uncommon in the Old Testament because I mean you've mm -hmm. got the Book of Deuteronomy and then you got the Book of Numbers, and yeah. you got the Book of Exodus, and in so many ways they all describe sometimes the same events but give different details and perspectives on the same events. Yeah, yeah. But I do okay. know. I need to. It's almost like it's almost like Genesis is like okay, here's here's kind of a the cliff notes in Genesis one. Here's the cliff notes of creation. Okay, now let me really get into it and. Genesis two is like the, the the nitty gritty details of, of the creation account. Yeah, well, that makes sense. Huh. 
Okay. So the fourth viewpoint is called the literary framework view. So in this view, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 is not considered a science textbook. It's not considered a... Um, it's not considered something that we are to read as if we are reading like a blueprint. It is intended to be read as a figurative framework explaining creation in a topical and not sequential order. So the six days of creation listed in Genesis 1 are intended to be interpreted metaphorically. Um, not really as literal 24-hour days. So it really divides the days up in half with days 1, 2, and 3 being the days where God formed. So day 1, light and darkness were separated. Day 2, the skies and the water were separated. Day 3, dry land and the waters were separated. And the plants and trees were, were made. So that's day 1, 2, and 3. And then day 4, 5, and 6 are the days where God filled the earth. So day 4, sun, moon, and stars. Day 5 is fish and birds. And day 6 is the animals and man. And so this is more of a, um, I don't say allegorical, because those who hold to this view say, no, God literally created the world, but it's more open-handed in terms of how did he do it? Well, he did it this way, but in terms of was that a literal 24-hour day? I mean, it could have been, but we don't know. That's not what this was intended to do, because the early readers of this would not have come to the text with the kind of um, presuppositions. Right. Yeah. Because, I mean, nobody reading this or nobody being told this story around the fire that's a, that's a Jew, you know, four or 5,000 years ago would have gone, okay, well, what about, you know, what about the sun and the moon occurring on day four where there's evening and morning on the first three days? Huh? 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 Like, nobody's doing that, right? <laughs> um, because they're understanding this creation narrative to be more like a lyric poem that communicates the order of creation and communicates that the crowning achievement, the crown jewel in the creation narrative is the creation of humanity in day six. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I think this is an interesting viewpoint, and I think it may explain how the, the early readers of the book of Genesis would have understood it. Um, but it doesn't really answer a lot of questions. Because it, it really leans heavily on this understanding. It's a figurative and poetic type thing. Yeah. But I think we, we also have to acknowledge that this is communicating a literal truth. Well, and I think in, you know, post, um, post-modernism, maybe just, maybe just um, in the, the age of reason, I should say, we look at things and we say, okay, I want it to, I want it to read like a, like a biology textbook. Right. And <laughs> that's just so far from what the book of Genesis is supposed to be. Right. Um, it's, it's just, like I said, it's, it's a, it's a historical narrative, but that it's like, it's, it's also got flavors of poetry and flavors exactly. of mysticism. You know, it's like this, it's right. like this, um, it's a beautiful, beautiful text. That's not supposed to be taken like your, your college biology textbook or right. your history textbook, you know? Yeah. So when we do that, when we take Genesis one, two, and three, and we try to squeeze it into a literary framework, it was never written to be in. Mm -hmm. Right. So we try to make it a biology textbook when it was 
written and understood for thousands of years before the origin of the species was written only 200 years ago or less than 200 years ago, we're really kind of doing it a disservice. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I mean, there's so many, um, and I really encourage people, if you can, if you can, um, begin to kind of become familiar with the original language it's written in, um, you know, it's, it's a beautiful book to read with some of the word plays that are used. Like, um, I was teaching in Bible this week, actually, we're going through the book of Genesis right now with my students. Just the, the, just the word Adam, Adam, um, and how it's interconnected with this stuff called Adama, which is the ground. And he makes Adam from this Adama. And in him, coursing through his veins, is this stuff called Dam. So you have Adam made from Adama, through which his veins flows Dam, which is blood. Hmm. All of it's connected and, and the Hebrew word for red is adum. So all of it's connected through this thread of like redness, you know, like there's a, maybe red soil and maybe, you know, red blood. And it's, it's got all these like little, little tiny literary play on words and stuff. And it's, it's a really beautiful book to read if you can kind of grapple wow. with the original language. Sure. So we're, we're literally like Adam, we're humanity. We're like ground people. We're like dirt people, you know? <laughs> Very, it's very humbling. I love that. Yeah, <laughs> dirt people would. But then dirt he does this really. Veins. He does a special thing. He he breathes the breath of life into our nostrils, and he doesn't do that with really anything else. And he calls us very good because of that. And I think wow. it's really important that we are just you know we are just dust. We'll return to dust. But in us is a soul. Is an eternal. There's an eternal aspect of us that is unique amongst all the creation. That I think you know, Darwinian evolution obviously underplays and completely ignores. Sure. What's that Hebrew word for the breath of life or the breath of God? Uh, nefesh chai. Yeah. The breath of life. Um, I love that. Yeah. And there's, and that, that the word nefesh is, is a very interesting one too. You could really do a lot of studies on that mm-hmm, Yeah, and, and talking about that through the old Testament. But this is the stuff that, you know, um, he, he, um, uses as kind of the, the criteria for the flood. So, you know, it's, um, it's, it's kind of in, he says in, in whom is the breath of life. Um, you know, the, hmm. the flood waters will take away in, in, in those who, who have been given the breath of life. Interesting. Wow. So I, I think, and going back to kind of these viewpoints, I think the literary framework view, there's something to that. N- not that, not that, um, Everything in the book of Genesis should be taken as figurative and poetic, but I think there is some truth to the fact that the first readers of Genesis, again, would not have read it like we read it as Americans mm, yeah. on the other side of the origin of the species. I, I, I think there's something to that. Now, do I think that um, we should interpret Genesis literally? Yes. But I think we should probably open up our minds a little bit to the reality of our own biases as we do. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, to me, literary well, framework has, has some strengths to it and we'll kind of break that down a little and bit. That, that's too. a good, that's a good principle to carry through anything that you're, whether you're watching the news or whether you're reading the Bible, you have a bias. And if I watch Fox news, I don't, <laughs> <laughs> you know, Fox we, news is fair and unbalanced. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh. Um, yeah, we, we are not free from bias and it's good to f- identify your bias and 
you know, kind of be able to say, this is my bias and I'm going to read this into everything that I view in, in right. today. You know, and that's an, yeah. it's important that we do that. Because you don't come to the text without, like I was talking with somebody the other day, like we are as humans, um, in a certain extent, we're all a product of our upbringing and our experiences. Yeah. Right. We all have a filter we view the world through. And so when you come to the Bible and you open up the Bible, you have a filter that you are reading it through most likely. Mm-hmm. Which is why I love discipling people who did not grow up in church. <laughs> and I love discipling people who have never read the Bible. Yeah. Because they don't come to the text with presuppositions of what they learned in, you know, first grade VBS or, you know, they, it, man, it's just such a awesome thing to come to it without a lot of that. But anyway, yeah. let's keep going. Uh, there's another view called the day age view. And so I'm sure you've probably heard of this. A lot of people have. So in this view, they say God created the universe, including Adam and Eve, in six sequential periods of time that are geologic ages, not literal 24-hour days. So when the Bible talks about day one, day two, day three, someone with this view basically sees that as a, um understanding of, okay, that was the Jurassic Age or that was the... Um, you know, all the different ages that, you know, um, mm-hmm. evolutionary scientists see. And so there's a huge problem with that, and that is the order of events in the six days is not the same order as held by old earth science. So the problem is in the in the creation narrative we see in Genesis, the sun appears on day four. Well, that's not what you see when you talk through the different geologic ages of, you know, older science and cosmologists. The sun appears first, and so it doesn't really, um, it's not congruent, basically. Yeah. So, and another problem with that is as you read the text, it seems like, okay, it seems like to be a literal six days. It doesn't seem like, you know, day one could have been 500 million years. Day two could have been another, you know, 800 million years. Um, So there, there seems to be some issues with that especially with adam and eve um yeah when it says you know there was evening there was morning day one and it's like the, the, right. i mean it's so literal i don't know why you wouldn't just accept it as such which yeah tidbit here for you that's why within the jewish faith even to this day a a day starts at sundown and ends at sundown because of the creation account there was evening there was morning day one so in the times of Jesus, Jesus would have counted his days and ordered his days based on sunset to sunset in the right. first century. Huh. And yeah. it all goes back to this this creation account. Interesting. Well, and then the last view is one that you and I have talked about, I think, last week, and that is theistic evolution. So mm-hmm. in this view, uh, one would hold to the the fact that God would essentially begin creation and then pull back from working directly in creation to work instead through the process of evolution. So the only exception that most theistic evolutions would say is that God was directly involved in the making of the human spirit. And uh, But for the most part, this view kind of accepts this hypothesis of evolution, but then tries to kind of insert God as the creator of matter and the overseer of the evolutionary process. Um, but really, there's kind of three big problems with this. Uh, the first is 
it kind of inherits all of the scientific possibilities of evolution, which we talked about last episode. Yeah. So those things aren't really going away. Well, yeah, and it, is, you know, it doesn't address the fact that if, if you believe that, then we're not the pinnacle of this evolutionary process. We're just, like I said, one more step along the way to right. what the end goal is. There is no end goal because it's all just kind of a product of random chance and natural yeah. selection. So, yeah, yeah so I, that, I completely I mean, reject that. I think I think the theistic yeah, evolution is. I, I do too, um, and I think there's a number of reasons for that. I, I think another reason is too. So evolution teaches that one species evolves into another species, but Genesis one mm-hmm. says that each species had offspring according to its kind. Yeah. So evolution basically says no, it doesn't have offspring according to its kind. You know, the the fish turns into the bird, which turns into the, you know, otter, which turns into the horse. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But that's not what Genesis says. So you would have to basically go through and, you know, that whole according to its kind. Okay, I had to explain that. And then I think the other problem is the the rest of Scripture portrays God as kind of being this continual uh, involvement in the details of creation. He makes the grass grow. Jesus talks about the Father feeding the birds and feeding other creatures. So Scripture clearly doesn't paint God as this kind of, you know, like like the deists often say, he's the divine watchmaker that winds the clock and then sits back and kind of lets it do its thing, right? I mean, we see God as directly involved in creation is intimately involved in the process of how things work. So it's not really congruent with, I think the portrayal of God in the rest of the scriptures. Yeah. Now let me ask you a a tough question. Okay. Um, Why do you always ask me the tough questions? Of all the views, of all the views that we just mentioned, someone, someone is um, seeking membership or to to be a part of your church. Mm -hmm. Um, do any of these create any kind of complications with that, or are they all pretty much like? Would you say these are all congruent with, compatible with the statement of faith with our church? I know someone listening to this podcast that comes to my church might want me to take a dogmatic stance on a lot of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and man, that's a hard question, Gabe. <laughs> I told you. You warned me. I'll say this. I think it all comes down to how we view Scripture. Mm-hmm. So if we view Scripture as God's inspired, inerrant word that describes actual events that really happened, if we view it as that, then I think we have to view Genesis 1 and 2 as that, right? Yeah. Um, I think if we view Scripture as kind of this highly symbolic, highly figurative you know, at the same time, deeply meaningful religious text. I think that gives all sorts of wiggle room for kind of understanding this every way we want. Yeah. So just you and me kind of talking, I mean, I think if somebody came to me and was like, you know, I hold the theistic evolution or I hold to gap theory, I think I, I would want to talk. I'd want to be like, okay, let's let's talk through this. Here's some issues I see with this. How do you believe in the literal inspired written word of God? Yeah. And, and my suspicion would be that is it is if they doubted Genesis 1 and 2 and they saw it as like, that's just, you know, metaphor and allegory, they would probably feel that way about some other parts of the scriptures. Yeah. And yeah, and I would, I would beg the question, why do you need to feel that way about scripture? And right. I think, I think um, in this area, I think, I, I mean, to be honest with you, there may be 
a stronghold in this person's life that they're looking for a blank check to write themselves. Right. Because they, if they can, if they can interpret Genesis one and two, figuratively or allegorically, then they can do that with some other parts of the text as well, and and Absolutely. make license for areas of sin in their life. Um, and I, yeah, I think that's that's ultimately the biggest danger with this is that if you're leaving this open ended and you're interpreting this to be allegorical, just completely, just you know, it's just all you know, figure of speech then that opens up uh, the window. Oh, what's up the door for doing that with the rest of Scripture? Right. Well, and I had this conversation a little while ago with a, with a buddy of mine. We were talking about, you know, he was discipling a guy that had a really hard time with the story of Jonah. Mm. And he's like, man, you can't expect me to believe that there was literally a fish that swallowed a guy and the guy stayed alive. And then the fish, you know, after three days vomited the fish on dry. And, and my buddy was like, man, you don't have to believe in Jonah. Like, you know, you can believe that however you want to believe it. Like that doesn't matter as much, you know, that's, but I kind of pushed back on that. And I was like, I, I don't know, man. <laughs> like, I, I really think if you start playing that game mm-hmm. of going through God's word with some scissors and kind of yeah, saying, nope, this is allegory. This is metaphor. This is figurative. Yeah. Who is the decider on that? Right, that makes right. me the final judge on what's figurative, what's allegorical. And my standard is, what do I find hard to believe? So if I find that hard to believe, I can just take my my white out and say, allegory. Yeah. Right? And, and then the problem is I get to the accounts of Jesus' resurrection. Mm-hmm. The entire bedrock and framework for our faith. And if I've done that with the rest of the Bible where things that I find difficult to believe, I say that's allegory, that's metaphor, that's figurative. What's to keep me from doing that with the miracles of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus? Yeah, and he does say, uh, as Jonah was in three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Right. So he apparently is is putting a lot of weight on that story. So yeah. Exactly. And then, yeah, yeah that, that ties directly to, like you said, the resurrection. So if we discount the story of Jonah... And it, which is a like a portent of the resurrection of the dead, then yeah, it's like Jesus' resurrection. And you're like, okay, well, that might just be allegorical. You know, maybe he didn't fully right. die. Like you might believe, like a like a Muslim would believe that he didn't really fully die. He just appeared right. to be dead. Well, and I'll say this: um, if the resurrection of Jesus actually happened, then everything else in the Bible mm-hmm. is possible, and not only possible. It is, it's, if God said it, then it happened, right? Um, I'm, I'm talking with a guy right now. I'm actually meeting with him later today. He is a former Mormon who is a now self-professed atheist. He does not believe in God. He doesn't believe in the existence of God, anything like that. And so we, we mm-hmm. had one good meeting and talked through some things, and I got him some books, and he's he's been reading some books, which has been really cool. And, and one of the things that uh, him and I talked about, you know, he came to me with all these different, things in the Old Testament, he's just like, you know, all these prophecies that talked about a civil war in Egypt, you know, back, like none of these happened and all this stuff. And I'm like, I said, okay, I said, we could get into the weeds of all that, but let's talk about the resurrection of Jesus for a second. If Jesus did not raise from the dead, then we have some serious things to explain away about human history. 
Like the existence of the Christian church does not make sense. And yet all of history is divided in two categories before Christ and then AD, right? Mm -hmm. Or BCE and CE now. I said, so explain to me what happened in the first century. And he's like, I can't. I was like, okay. So here's what I would suggest to you. And it is that Jesus literally rose from the dead. Here's some things to read on, study up on it. Let's come back and we can talk about those claims. Hmm. So I think that's the that's the hinge point for everything in the scriptures. If Jesus rose from the dead and God could do that, what's to say God could not create the universe in six literal days? Yeah, which goes right back to Genesis 3.15, where God says to this serpent, I will put enmity between your mm-hmm. seed and the seed of the woman. He will crush your head, but you will bruise his heel. And it's the very first glimpse that we have in the midst of exile, he's about to exile them out of the garden. He gives them hope, and he's like, there will be a redeemer who will come. He will crush yeah. y- your head, but you will bruise his heel. And right. then from there on out, it's like there's over 300 of these messianic prophecies that flesh out with the Messiah, the, the mission and the role um, of the Messiah, the teachings of the Messiah. And um, and yeah, I mean, it's, these these are all coming thousands of years before he even steps on the scene. Yeah. To give yeah. us to give us no excuse for, for believing in him. Sure. Not, for not believing in him. And and I would even say to somebody that, that comes to the Bible doubting its historicity, doubting, you know, I don't know. Man, there's sixty six books written by forty different authors on three different continents in three different languages, and yet there's congruency between all of them. There's no contradictions between any of them, and there's one common theme, and it all flows together with all these prophecies being fulfilled. Either it is God's holy, written, inspired word, or it is the biggest hoax of all time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it is a fascinating coincidence how it all could have come together the way it did. Yeah. And if you don't believe that it's God's literal, inspired, written word, um, you have some explaining to do. Mm. And I think the burden of proof rests on someone to explain prophecies in Genesis 3.15 and prophecies in Isaiah 53 and all, all of those things. Like, oh, how did that happen if, you know, that this was an actual, you know, God God's truth? Yeah. Yeah, the author has to be supernatural for all that to be possible. Yeah. And, you know, like I like to talk to about uh, real quick about people um, who question the text. Is the text that we have today accurate compared to the text, I mean, just 2,000 years ago. Well, the Dead Sea Scrolls are an amazing window into the the textual tradition of the first century and prior to the first century. And the Great Isaiah Scroll is the largest and complete copy, the oldest and complete copy of the book of Isaiah that we have, that we found in the caves of Qumran, that mm. it dates back to the first century. And so they were like, okay, let's compare this to modern copies of the, of the book of Isaiah. And they compared them 2,000 years later. There's a 1% margin of error between those, those texts. Wow. And that 1% is just minor spelling differences. And wow. all the, the message of the book of Isaiah is completely still there and coherent and readable yeah. 2,000 years later. So that argument of, you know, the Bible's been changed by so many people down through the ages. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, it's the Illuminati in the Vatican City somewhere, you know, changing it so... You know, all, all of those crazy conspiracy theories and all that stuff, that doesn't actually hold any water if you look at it from an archaeological perspective. Well, that's that's the argument that's made by by um, the Quran 
is that yeah the, the the text was corrupted by the Christians and the Jews yeah and the Quran comes along to fix those corruptions but the Quran doesn't come along till the sixth or seventh century AD mm-hmm. whereas yeah we have the the um, Dead Sea Scrolls which you know predate that right and they just add credence to the fact that yeah the the, the Hebrew Bible the 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 text is a very coherent and accurate text. Right. So kind of in, in, in landing the plan, closing up, like I, I think a couple of takeaways. Um, one is logically what we believe about Genesis and the creation, I think is important to the rest of our theology. Agree or disagree? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, like we said, I mean, if you if you view this as complete figurative allegory, you know, blah, 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 then what's to keep you from viewing the rest of the scriptures as that? I think that's something to think mm-hmm. through. Um, the second thing that's a, a big takeaway from this is Darwinist evolution, and this goes back to kind of our first episode, it's a theory, it's not a scientific fact, and it can neither disprove the existence of God or explain how the universe came to be. Mm-hmm. So it has limitations. It It tries to explain how life appeared on the earth and how life evolved from one life form to the other, but it it can't really get to the heart of um, what was that thing that created the universe and spoke it into existence. It's, it can't do that, right? So really it's incomplete. So when people say, I believe in science, well, there's no science that really explains or gives an explanation of, you know, open and shut, this is a closed case, this is how it came to be. And then lastly, and we'll kind of land the plane, how we approach the Bible with respect to origins speaks to how we will approach it everywhere else. So I think it's crucial for us to um, understand these things and to, to really lean into them. Yeah. Yeah, good talk. I, I like I like uh, the book of Genesis. And like I said, I'm reading through with my students right now. And, yeah. and it seems like every question... You know, I pick on a lot of my students and tell them that they kind of had a their their uh, biblical scholarship is rooted in Veggie Tales episodes. <laughs> and, uh, hey, what's wrong with that? You know, and so like I'll ask them questions and I'll be like, you know, as we're reading through and 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 challenge some of these things. That just just yeah. simple things like how many animals did Noah bring in the ark? How how long was Noah on the ark? You know, like right. all these different things. And and it's funny because they'll spit out these very like. Uh, Sunday school, but incorrect answers. Right, and, right, right. Um, but it, it gets them. It gets them really engaged. It gets them fired up because they're like, "Wait a second, yeah. there's more," you know. And so we have a lot of fun doing that. But it's yeah. really important that as as believers, we go back to the beginning and we figure out where did sin originate from. Where is there a promise of redemption? Where is Abraham's promise given? And then that's Paul. Paul is in, Gen- in Galatians. Paul is constantly going back to the promises given to Abraham. You're, you know, you're of the seed of Abraham. And we have to understand the promises given to Abraham that are only found in the book of Genesis and the gospel that was told to Abraham. And and yeah. it's really important that we be very familiar with that because that is the foundation of our faith. Absolutely. Awesome. I think you have solved every doubt that anyone has ever had about the book of Genesis. <laughs> I doubt that. <laughs> <laughs> I think we did it. We've we did finally it. done it. Now, I man, I feel like this is such a crucial conversation to have and and i you know even if somebody's listening to this and they're still doubting that's okay god can handle your doubts yeah right i mean uh the book of jude says have mercy on those who doubt Mm 
So like the church should be the safest place to have doubts. What the Christian faith does not say is check your brains in at the door, blindly accept right. everything. Jesus says to doubting Thomas, hey, touch the touch the hand the 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 holes in my hands and see my yeah. side don't disbelieve believe you know look at the proof look at the evidence and i really think if you do look at the evidence then you you come away with the conclusion that that there there is a creator god that uh intelligently designed this universe yeah so. i would encourage people too if you're doubting um don't make your first stop uh to cure that doubt don't make your first stop youtube <laughs> or make, google yeah 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 make your first stop fasting and prayer yeah, and honestly begging your heavenly father to reveal to you his truth right. and his presence. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, YouTube isn't bad. You might find, but there's a lot of information on there that you got to sort through, but just, just begin with fasting and prayer and allow his Holy spirit to, to guide you, to teach you through that. And he hates seeing his children hungry and you mm. will move on your behalf if you do that. Yeah, good word. Good word. Although, if you type in Zoom fails on YouTube, you can watch mm. some pretty funny things. That could be a good yeah. first stop for Zoom fails and people falling and funny okay, stuff, sure. and stuff like that. Yeah. Well, Gabe, this has been a great discussion, man. Thanks yeah. for having it with me. Yeah, until next time. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Yeah, we'll see you guys next time. Well, thanks for listening. That's our show. If you like what you've heard, make sure to give us a share, leave us a review, or send us an email at beardsandbiblepodcast at gmail.com.